Hey everyone, thank you for uh, listening in. I have as my guest here today, Chris Date. And uh, Chris is uh, someone who uh, I've uh, really enjoyed interacting with and uh, I've admired uh, particularly his work with Rethinking Hell and I've enjoyed his podcast, The Apologetics, which uh, is, uh, is in need of an update, I think, Chris. <laughs> yeah, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't hold your breath. <laughs> so, well, uh, I mean, really quickly, I, I, part of the reason why we chose this film to discuss uh, or why I suggested it, What Dreams May Come, is because of its, um, you know, issue, um, reflection on issues of the afterlife, and that's mm. been a sort of a specialty of yours. And uh, would you mind giving a little bit of a, uh, a backstory about kind of your uh, your focus on that area? Yeah, I, I became a Christian when I was 20 years old, having formerly been an atheist and not having been raised in church or anything like that. Uh, when I became a Christian, though, having had extremely little exposure to Christianity uh, in Christian circles, um, the one thing that I knew that as a Christian I needed to believe, or one of the things, one of the few things anyway, was that hell uh, is a place of eternal conscious torment. Um, it was something that I must have imbibed from culture and from media and stuff like that. Um, it's not at all the kind of thing that um, has to be actively taught you to believe by, uh, you know, in churches. It's just sort of this is what uh, the culture knows is official Christian teaching. And so I accepted that. And, and as I listened very early on to theologians and apologists and things like that, I, could, I continued to believe in um, the, this traditional view of hell uh, and defended it, um, including against. Um, people like Jehovah's Witnesses, for example. Mm -hmm. But uh, when I began, or, or at some point during that podcast you mentioned, The Apologetics, which the reason I say it's, I wouldn't hold your breath is just because I have so extremely little time to mm -hmm. keep that up. But anyway, at, at one point I um, was uh, uh, doing ministry at another website as well with a, a mutual friend of ours named Glenn Peoples. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was discussing the issue of physicalism with him at the time, uh, one of the texts that I raised, and, and, and to clarify really quickly, physicalism is is what exactly? Yeah, so uh, physicalism is a view of philosophy of mind. Um, it contrasts with what would be called substance dualism, which is the view that human beings have a material body and an immaterial soul that typically is believed to remain conscious after death, whereas uh, physicalism of the brand or variety that Glenn Peoples holds to is the view that human beings are physical creatures, that we do have minds, uh, but those minds are sort of the product or, or effect of, our, of, of the functioning of our brains, such that when we die and our brain cease to function, we, no longer, um, we are no longer conscious. So... When I was, uh, I was a dualist at the time and uh, was ministering with Glenn at our friend Dee Dee Warren's The Preterist podcast and blog, and I was asking him about the, uh, the, uh, the implications of Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus says, uh, don't fear men who can kill the body but can't kill the soul, rather fear God who can destroy both body and soul in Gehenna. And I was sort of... Um, using that as an argument against physicalism. And he said, and you know, I won't go into a discussion about physicalism here, but what he pointed out was the challenge that that text posed to my view of hell at the time, which was, a, was eternal torment. And in the course of that discussion, I, I brought up Mark 9, 48, where Jesus says, their worm shall not die and their fire, fire shall not be quenched. And Glenn pointed out, well, yeah, but go look at what Jesus is quoting in Isaiah 66, 24. And when I saw there that... Um, explicitly, Isaiah says it's corpses that are being fed upon by corpses or by maggots and fire, um, and that the scene is one in which God's enemies have been slain and their bodies, their dead bodies, are sort of piled up and being consumed. That began to um, 
th that caused me to begin to question whether this tradition that I had accepted when I became a Christian was in fact biblical. And so I began, um, you know, never, never having any sort of inner turmoil or emotional objection or philosophical objection to this doctrine of hell. I, I began to, to question whether the exegesis of scripture supported it. And so I began to research that. I, I interviewed Edward Fudge, author of The Fire That Consumes, on my on the apologetics. And suffice it to say that over the course of several months, I became convinced, went on to um, defend conditional immortality or annihilationism in debates and on radio shows and stuff like that, uh, joined up with a ministry that uh, was that began um, at that time called Rethinking Hell. And, you know, ever since then, I've published, been publishing articles and podcasts and books and speaking at conferences and so forth. Well, and you, uh, you, even, debated, um, you even debated Al Mohler as well. You had an opportunity to do that, right? Yeah, that was that was uh, incredible. I really enjoyed that. Um, Al, Dr. Moeller is uh, very smart, and he was very kind and respectful. And you know, after the recording was over, he said he'd love to meet me sometime. Um, but most most listeners on either side, I think, of the debate would say that he um, did not come out the victor in that <laughs> debate. Uh, and and I suspect it has more to do with his lack of preparedness. I, I don't think he went into that debate expecting what it is that he encountered. I think a lot of defenders of the traditional view think that that we conditionalists are uh, soft-hearted, liberal sentimentalists, and that sure. we, we just can't stomach the idea of eternal hell, and and so we're just sort of trying to shoehorn our view into scripture. But none of that fits uh, fits a, is a fitting description of me. For me, it was about exegesis, and when yeah. and when I was responding to his uh, attempted exegesis of texts, I just don't think he was prepared for that kind of conditionalist. But anyway, it was great interaction and it's um, really opened a lot of people's eyes, I think. I was thankful for it. Oh yeah, I, I was I was very excited to discover it. I, I actually, uh, for me, um, it was um, uh, interacting with a, a friend who was a Seventh-day Adventist uh, that got me open to Christianity um, kind of in high school, uh, again, mm -hmm. after I'd been an atheist through high school and junior high. Um, so, you know, it didn't take me too long to discover uh, Glenn Peoples and uh, then uh, kind of ran into rethinking hell, and uh, it's it's a tremendous resource for anybody who's interested in in um, uh, these issues of of um, you know what what does the afterlife consist consist of or or not consist of, uh, particularly for uh, uh, when it comes to final punishment. Well, thank you, and, and I'll just add, given the nature of the film we're about to discuss, that what actually, it's not just the sort of bad news of the afterlife that I'm particularly interested in, it's also the, the good news and the, and the um, heaven side of things. The very first episode that I did of The Apologetics was me explaining um, that what got me uh, what, what caused me to, to, to decide to start blogging and podcasting was it occurred to me just how poor uh, most the understanding is of most Christians concerning um, heaven and concerning the eternal state and, and the resurrection. Most Christians, I suspect, lay Christians, uh, uninformed Christians, if you ask them, you know, about eternity, you, you, you'll probably he'll hear nothing about resurrection. You'll probably get the impression that they believe in some sort of a disembodied spirits floating on clouds with harps kind of a view. And, um, and I'm very passionate, you know, about that. And so this, this movie is an opportunity to discuss both the good and bad sides of the afterlife and, and whether the, um, whether the views depicted in it are even remotely biblical. Yeah, that, 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 absolutely. And I think that, that was, you know, why I thought you would be a good fit for this. Uh, Cause it's definitely an issue you've, you've thought about a lot. And um and I think as we get into this, what one thing that that I, I sort of felt as I watched it was um, that what essentially is happening in this film is a um, um, what you might call um, um, 
a, a midrash. Midrash, okay. Yeah, it, it, this, this movie felt to me like a midrash on, uh, in some sense, uh, traditional views of heaven and hell <laughs> um, in Christianity. So it was it was interesting to see where where uh, where they took it. Um, it's, it's funny because I, I would use a word that sounds like midra, uh, midrash. The, the word I would use is mishmash. It, it seems to me <laughs> to be just such a mishmash of all sorts of different views, and, and it lacked a lot of coherence in my view. But anyway, I mean, those, those, those yeah, oh yeah, that's, that's fair. Yeah, and so um, so and anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of quickly introduce the the film. Um, it was directed by a, a gentleman named Vincent Ward. Um, who's actually directed a number of films over a number of years, but uh, this was the only one that was very familiar to me. Um, I did notice he was a writer on Alien 3, which was actually kind of interesting because it dealt that also dealt with a lot of spiritual and religious themes. Hmm. Um, so it seems like it's something that he thinks about. The um, It's actually based on a novel by Richard Matheson, um, who is actually one of my favorite authors. Um, he wrote... Um, not just uh, a lot of books and short stories, but um, he wrote um, Twilight Zone episodes, a uh, number of uh, some of them, which are my favorites. Um, and uh, I'd read this book uh, when I was much younger. And uh, he also wrote um, those a Stir of Echoes, which was developed into a film with Kevin Bacon, uh, and I Am Legend, which has been made into has been remade multiple times. And uh, for, for my money, uh, none of the film versions of that are, are are anywhere near as good as the novella that he wrote. But hmm. um, so in so in the film, we have um, a handful of central characters, uh, just a few. Uh, there's the character of Chris, who's played by Robin Williams. His wife, Annie, who's played by Annabella Shora, I believe is how you pronounce her name. Uh, and so what is essentially happening in the film plot-wise, and we're going to spoil it a little bit here so we can actually discuss the issues uh, raised in the film, um, is uh, you have these uh, two people that, that fall in love, um, and uh, have children together. The children die in a car accident. Uh, that, um, and you see sort of through a series of flashbacks at different points in the movie that you know the the, the woman, the wife, uh, the mother uh, deals with a lot of issues of depression and suicidal thoughts, and it almost destroys their marriage. But they work through it, uh, and then he also dies. Um, um, he's hit by a car, and um, um, so then he sort of at this point. Um, goes into the afterlife, experiences something like heaven, um, and is waiting eagerly for his wife to join him. But she commits suicide and winds up in hell, and he decides that he's going to try to go to hell to rescue her. I would say, you know, just looking at the, the film from a technical aspect before we kind of look at the some of the theological and philosophical themes, one thing that really stood out to me watching it was um, I thought the visual effects were beautiful. You know, there, I think there were a lot of movies made around this time that really heavily relied on visual effects, and I don't think a lot of those films held up nearly as well as this one did. Uh, how, how, did I don't know if you had any thoughts about the about the look of the film or or, or its kind of um, aesthetic value. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right, especially especially for the time. I think that its uh, visual. Um, you know, its special effects were fantastic. It certainly is a uh, you know, in particular, Chris's. Chris's version of the afterlife, you know, his his special place in the afterlife, which is a, this, you know, an issue that we'll get into, is, is stunningly beautiful. Uh, you know, his 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 he's constructed in his afterlife a uh, basically a three dimensional world that represents paintings that he and his wife um, uh, loved when they were both alive, and and so the surroundings are not only beautiful 
the way that, you know, a rolling landscape with beautiful trees and mountains and <clears throat> rivers and, you know, waterfalls and things like that. But, but furthermore, all those things are made of paint. And so you have this sort of surreal vanilla sky kind of um, uh, look to it. And it is. It's, 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 it's stunning. I, I think I'm a, maybe a little bit of a product of my generation. I don't even know if that's even true. But the I guess what I was going to say was I'd love to see it done now. 20, 20 years later, I think it could be done even more stunningly. Um, and, and some of the things that, you know, looking back, I, for example, you've got the scene where in his daughter's version of Heaven, um, I'm not giving away too much right now, but the, these, these figures are floating up and down and flying up into the sky and stuff. And it, it just reminds me how poorly uh, the special effect of people flying has um, <laughs> historically been able to be achieved. So, but, but, it, but anyway, those minor criticisms aside, yeah, it is, it is beautiful. Um, it is it is beautiful uh, special effects for sure. Yeah, I I, um, I can see that. You know, I, I remember um, I want to say it was it's either Leonard Maltin or Roger Ebert who had said something uh, to the effect of um, um, you know in in older films back before the advent of CGI and, and that kind of thing, um, the effects looked fake but felt real. Hmm. Whereas you know, once once you start having computer generated effects, you have effects that uh, look real but feel fake. That's, and uh, that's a good way to put it. And and this is kind of an interesting film because you do have a little mixture of both. Not everything is completely computer generated, uh, like is done now. And one thing that I I felt of why the effects seem to work better in this film than I know this is probably going to upset a lot of people, but like the <laughs> Matrix, um, <laughs> is that I didn't think the effects in this film were gratuitous. Right. They served a very specific purpose, and it was an aesthetic purpose. Um, it wasn't necessarily like a just just to be over the top. And I think that gave them a sense of restraint. Whereas if you compare that to a film like um, Spawn, hmm. um, which came out around this time as well, and was viewed as I mean, having really you know amazing, mind blowing special effects, and that film looks terrible. I mean, the hell scenes in Spawn are are really awful now. Yeah. Um, but but in, in this film, they work, at least in my opinion. And, and actually, there's little things, too, that aren't, I mean, um, have nothing to do with, like, CGI or whatever, like um, uh, like Annie's makeup when um, Chris comes to visit her in hell. Mm -hmm. And when he's first talking to her, everything is grayed out. And it looks, I, I'm pretty sure it's a makeup effect because, you, you know, he seems to be more colorful, but her lips look gray, her face looks gray. Um, and, you know, when she's maybe perhaps about to come out and, and sort of you know, her, she's sort of getting out of the hell mentality. You the know, color this, starts to return. Yeah. The color starts to turn Her lips become, you know, a little more red. And so th there's little things like that, that, you know, are, are subtle, but, but work very well. I mean, it's very much an aesthetic film in, in my yes. mind. Yeah. And in fact, uh, my wife told me that she thinks that it was, uh, the, the movie was intended to showcase um, special effects and, and visual effects more than to, you know, tell the story of the book. I don't know if she's right, but um, but it certainly um, it does try. It does feature those kinds of really good special effects that you're describing. And, and you're right on today, especially on the kinds of t TV screens that we had 20 years ago. Um, you know, I watched it in on my HD TV, and uh, the make you could tell she's wearing makeup. You can even see slight little uh -huh. bits of color. Uh, in the scene you're describing, um, but uh, but it's hardly noticeable, uh, you know, some 20 years later on an HDTV. So you know that they're um, that they did pretty well for the time. Well, 
Well, and actually, I mean, speaking of, uh, you know, whether the film is really trying to explore the same themes as the book, it's been years since I've read it, but one point that stuck sticks out to me uh, is a plot point, and that's that in the book, the children aren't dead. Hmm. Um, and it felt to me that the reason the filmmakers chose to have the children die in the film was because it made um, Annie's choice to commit suicide seem more relatable or understandable. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the feeling that I had was that, you know, some people could read, you know, so in the book, you know, she's a mother who commits suicide over the loss of her husband, but her children are still around. And I, I, yeah, I, I think maybe there was a concern that she would seem, she'd be less empathetic. People would feel like, you know, your kids are still alive. Why are you, you know what I mean? I think that's legitimate. Um, you know, my wife and I have said that if we've sometimes wondered how we would handle it if one of us were to pass and both of us, I think have felt we, we have to go on for our children's sake as hard as that would be. So I think that might've been a wise decision on the part of the producers or writers. I mean, well, it is interesting though, because it does raise issues of mental illness and, and, and how we um, relate to or understand or uh, view people who are struggling with mental illness. Um, and, you know, certainly it, it, what's kind of interesting is obviously when, in this afterlife, heaven and hell are creations of the mind in, in a large sense. Um, but this is even, you know, obviously even truer of, in a sense of Annie, because that's true of her life before she dies. It's, you know, mental illness sometimes is a hell that your mind creates for you. Mm. And, you know, she's obviously unhappy in this hell. She doesn't want to be there, but it's still a creation of her mind. Mm. And That's I thought that was kind of an interesting, uh, I don't know, aspect, I guess. Sure. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't. Um, so maybe it would be good to uh, um, jump forward a little bit to um, some of these issues of, of the actual just specific kind of details portrayal of heaven and hell. Well, even before that, I thought that, you know, you mentioned this idea of the heaven and hell being creations of the mind. Mm -hmm. Um Maybe maybe before we start getting into hell and heaven and hell specifically, we could talk about the question of philosophy of mind, which is you know because we we you know a few minutes ago I was describing my understanding of substance dualism versus physicalism, but there's also idealism. A friend of mine, Jim Spiegel, is a Christian idealist, and what what struck me was it wasn't just heaven and hell that are the products of the mind. You know, at one point um, the the afterlife manifestation of his son, played by Cuba Gooding Jr., says to um, says to Chris that the physical is the illusion, that mm -hmm. what's true is what um, is what is in our minds. Yeah, I think he, I think I think he specifically says thought is real. Physical thought is real, exactly. Yeah. So so that sounds to me like idealism, uh, but then at the same time, there's all the, there are all these questions about uh, souls, you know, and, and human beings having souls. So it seemed to me to be, uh, like you said, anti-physicalist. Um, but but whether it's whether it's a, a sort of a dualist or whether it's an idealist picture um, is an open question, or maybe it's, it's sort of like I said, a mishmash of both. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I think um, that there's uh, Chris even makes a comment in a flashback before he's dead, um, where he's talking to I think Annie and says, "What's true in our minds is true." Right. Um, and, and so yeah, there's definitely this strong aspect of you know reality being determined um, by by our minds, and that's obviously. I guess, in a sense, more so in heaven and hell than it is on earth, but um, it still seems to be 
their viewpoint about about Earth as well. Yeah, and I think that also says something about in in terms of worldview. It's not only a a, a view of philosophy of mind. It, it's arguably also a view of ethics. Um, you know, the, the the movie seems to have little, if anything at all, to say about the uh, about the morality or justice of of actions. And so when I when he says what's true in our minds is true, I didn't take that merely as a, you know a sort of repudiation of, of, of a physicalism, but but also um, a, a relativistic view of ethics. You know, it's whatever I think is true is what's true for me, and, and whatever you think is true is what's true for you. Um, so so it, it's it's this that that th idea about thoughts being real and what's being in our true in our minds is true actually i think um touches on a number of different uh areas in, in philosophy yeah yeah absolutely well and and uh, you know to kind of get into this idea of uh whether the film is is um supporting something like idealism or some kind of anti-physicalism it it brings to mind you know Obviously, so I, I I'm not sure where I fall on the uh, dualist or, or physical physicalism viewpoint, but I'm certainly not an idealist. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, th this idea that you sort of have, you know, well, you know, you're not a um, you're not a, a body having a, a spiritual experience, you're a spirit having a bodily experience, or something like that. That what we really are is this non-physical part of ourselves, and, and that seems absolutely contradictory to the biblical viewpoint. Um, and it also seems nonsensical, particularly at this point where we know so much about genetics and 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 um and how much our, our physicality and, and and what we inherit shapes who we are. I mean, it's if when you think about it in terms in those kinds of terms, it's hard to imagine what it is that is supposed to be really you that's not physical, because everything about yourself, even those things you think of as sort of distinct about you are in some sense connected to your physical embodiment uh, mm -hmm. at the very least your genetics or you know the, your your personality or whatever sort of shaped in that way yeah i think you're absolutely right uh i'm just a little reluctant to say much about idealism because i got the impression from jim spiegel when i talked to him that what i think of as at least a christian variation of idealism is not uh <laughs> it, it doesn't really reflect what it is that christian idealists believe so that that's that's an area of study that i'd be interested in, in pursuing just to find out what it is that they believe i, I think that the, what they would want to say christian idealists anyway is the 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 fundamental reality that is thought that is idea is is that of god mm -hmm. I, that's my guess you know um we are manifest manifestations of god's creative thoughts and that is our fundamental reality and as you said we're, we're sort of experiencing a physical experience but like i said I, i'm not very familiar with the landscape there so sure yeah yeah and i i i obviously uh <laughs> i don't want to misrepresent someone other someone else's viewpoint either um but you know in just thinking about the film itself and comparing that to what i see as the biblical world the world view or, or viewpoint um you know the, in the biblical viewpoint um or perspective the physical world is not only good but it's actually central to the restoration of all things that god is going to accomplish that's right and um you know so i don't see anything like that in this film which I think seems to be leaning on this idea that oh you're just a you're just a spirit having a physical experience, um, that who you really are is is this spiritual part of your soul, part of yourself, or mind. Yeah, and 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 it all it raises other questions too. You know, one of the things that struck me is that um, 
at least three characters in this afterlife, uh, namely Chris's son, um, well, his and his wife's son, their daughter, and his mentor, they mm -hmm. all uh, manifest themselves uh, ostensibly by choice in the in the afterlife uh, as people other than who they actually are. Mm -hmm. And what strikes me about that is that not only does this seem to um, diminish the value of of our physical embodiment, but it also seems it also seems to me to raise questions about um, the value of identity and, and reality you know um it, what is wrong what is so wrong with a person's true identity that that in their supposedly blissful afterlife they prefer to present themselves as somebody somebody totally different um now i know there are they address you know why they present themselves differently to him but but, but see that raises other questions as well that maybe we'll get into yeah well actually i i think it might be a good time to, to bring that up now which is um you know the the reason that his um, his uh, at least the very least his daughter and his son portray themselves differently is because um, they have experienced an imperfect love from their father that makes them insecure to be themselves. Um, and you know that this whole idea in the film that you know Chris and Anne, Annie are, are soulmates, um, and that their bond is so deep. Um, that it sort of transcends, um, well, I mean, obviously, you know, I don't want to say that, that your relationship with your kids should be more important than your relationship with your spouse or something, but, um, you know, it, it, it super, it, it abundantly, it, it transcends <laughs> um, mm -hmm. the relationship with their kids. And um, it kind of brought to mind, for me, um, this idea uh, that I've sort of heard, heard explain that, um, you know, love, pure love requires that there be more than two parties that romantic love even though it seems other focused is still you know very closed off and essentially um kind of um self-gratifying um and i you know I, i've always thought that was an interesting argument um for the trinity in particular but at the very least it, it seems to be if not explicit kind of an implicit undercurrent in this film uh that um you know the their deep love for each other um, has, in some sense, left their kids in a in a unsatisfactory position. And and it's it's also interesting about what it says about the afterlife that um, you know, in contrast to the Christian viewpoint that God is going to wipe away every tear, there's a great deal of insecurity and and sadness and and weeping um, in 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 heaven in this film. And um, that's that's very interesting. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, I'll touch on that in a second. But going back to their portrayal of themselves differently, it's interesting because I understood their reasons for doing that differently. Um, I took the mentor's explanation as being the reason why all three of them presented themselves differently, which is that they didn't want their their relationships in life, those relationships being mentor-student, mm -hmm. uh, father and son, and so forth, to um, it, to unduly shape their interactions in this afterlife, um, and 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 part of the reason why I take why I why I lean towards that over the insecurity view is because even after um, his their their father, you know, kind of wakes up to the reality that these are his children and you know, they, they, they reunite emotionally and everything. They continue 
to present themselves in that way. And I'm not sure what to make of that, but 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 either way, the the thing that I find interesting about that is, in fact, kind of what you're saying, which is they there's something wrong about uh, or you know there's something imperfect about this afterlife such that they've got to change how they present themselves to make it uh, to make it better. Mm-hmm. And the weeping thing was interesting. You know, you're right. It is that uh, there's so much sadness and insecurity and and, and other things there. Um, and and this sort of gets to one of the arguments theologically or philosophically for for our a conditionalist understanding of hell. Look how much um, pain um, Chris undergoes knowing that his wife is suffering. Mm-hmm. How as you know, I mean, if if we want to briefly touch on the theological aspects, mm-hmm. um, how, how as Christians, how how as redeemed people could 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 we enjoy eternity knowing that our loved ones that didn't repent are suffering in hell? I I find that to be a powerful challenge in light of the kinds of emotions experienced by the character Chris in this movie. Well, yeah, and obviously uh, I I certainly wouldn't look at um, a lost uh, loved one um, (laughs) burning in hell forever in the same way that Tertullian (laughs) <laughs> seem to argue that um, one of the great joys of heaven will be hearing the the, the, the screaming cries of those who are burning in hell. Um, well, so I think one thing about, um, and, uh, I don't want to belabor a point too much, but the idea that sort of insecure in the love of their parents, th- there's a few lines that sort of stuck out for me. Um, one where Chris is, he's talking to his son, but he doesn't realize it's his son. Um, the, the, the character of uh, Cuba, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character. And um, he's defensive about his relationship with his wife. And he says, you don't know us. And uh, his son says, I wish I did. Yeah. And uh, so there, and, and actually um, his son continues to take on the form of, of the Cuba Gooding Jr. character or, or, or whatever um, actor, I don't know, visage in hell after, uh, uh, cause he's sort of in hell with his father to try to help find the mother. And when the father realizes who he is, he does continue to keep that form. That's but right. um, once he does bring his wife back and brings her into sort of his heaven or their heaven, I guess, uh, the son and daughter show up in their earthly forms. Yeah, that's a good point. So yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I wondered if, if, you know, this, there was sort of a reconciliation and an experience of love that happens in heaven when they're in these different forms um, that maybe, and, 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 and maybe, maybe I'm going too far to say that they, this had something to do with his imper- imperfections as a father. Um, but at the very least they needed to be shown that his love was sincere and, um, you know, um, uh, unconditional before they were willing to take off these other sort of, um, uh, external images, um, as a way of sort of buffering their relationship. Yeah, I think that's very plausible. Uh, I mean, you definitely get, you know, when, when when his daughter appears to him as this flight attendant that she once saw him, um, not ogle, but, you know, <laughs> remark mm-hmm. on, on how Asian women are, are, they have beauty and grace and stuff. She seems to, the impression you get is that she felt that he hadn't, you know, that there was something lacking in his appreciation for her own uh, mm-hmm. beauty and grace and so forth. And, and similarly, 
this, you know, you could, I, I think you're right. The, the son, I think, sees this relationship that his dad had with his mentor as being the kind of relationship he'd like to have with his own dad or something like that. And so, yeah, there may be something to what you're saying. Um, that raises another question for me, though, that, that uh, I thought was interesting, which is that in this afterlife, uh, when children die, they remain children in the afterlife. Um, at least in their sort of true form, if you can use the word true. And so, for example, not only do they take their masks off to use your language and, and sort of uh, at, by, at, by the end of the movie are comfortable just being there themselves. Mind you, they're four, four plus year olds, you know, themselves from four years earlier. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so apparently there's no aging in the afterlife. So apparently when you die and you go into this afterlife, you remain at the age that you're at. <laughs> You know, uh, if you're if you're that young, I mean, you even had uh, babies or, or or toddlers in the mm-hmm. um, in his daughter's version of the afterlife. I, j- I just thought that was interesting. Um, if if the physical is just an illusion, um, you know, what 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 reason would there be to continue appearing as a child once you're in this afterlife? I don't know. It was, I just thought that was interesting. Well, well I, but actually, though, I, I don't know that it's ever stated um, that these toddlers in heaven are actually toddlers. For all we know, they could be 90-year-old men who are hearkening back to a, a time when they were young and, and happy or something. And I think um, uh, she actually, his wife actually asks him, once they get to heaven, could we grow old here? And I think he says yes, because ultimately... They can if they want to. It's, it's it, because all of that is simply a matter of the mind. Yeah, that's true. Although I, I don't think any of them would really want to grow old and and with with everything that growing old <laughs> sure comes with. You know, yeah. I think so. I I don't know. That that's a good point. But um, but but see, and and this raises yet another question, which is. <sighs> it's it strikes me as strange that there's seemingly nothing wrong with going around and deceiving everybody right because when you're appearing as people that you're not that you aren't really uh you're you're appearing to people you know and people you don't as people that you're not actually that you actually aren't and and i just you know the, this goes back to what i said earlier which is that this the whole concept of their of there being value to what is real uh, not just what is physical but what is real seems to be really minimized except for and this was another interesting thing i'm going off on all sorts of tangents i apologize i i thought it was interesting how that you know the, the concept of this afterlife and the, the good side of it anyway is that you create whatever reality you want except for this city across the river where his daughter says there has to be some sort of a common vision mm-hmm. um i just it strikes me as so bizarre uh why couldn't each person experience a different vision even when they're um you know, in one another's company, uh, and and why is the common vision like a a you know first century Greek or, or Roman <laughs> type of environment very similar to the one in in the in the uh, uh, what's it called the mobile or whatever the the the, the um, that his daughter has that his daughter has right exactly so it was just it's just really weird I I, I one of, that's one of the things I don't like about the message of this movie is it seems to uh, diminish the, the any sort of value in objective reality. It's all about whatever you want it to be, except in this in this arbitrarily chosen um, center of all reality. I don't know. It was when, when you hear people talk about relativism and values, um, you know, it, relativism isn't necessarily individual relativism. It could be cultural relativism. And so, you know, even then, there's this idea that we have to sort of we have to 
have this common vision if we're going to work together. It doesn't particularly matter what that vision is as long as we share it. <laughs> it's kind of maybe a feeling that I, I might get from it. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. But one uh, thing I won't... Oh, sorry, go on. No, no, you go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that the, the idea that um, you can sort of create your own heaven individually or that you have to sort of have a shared vision uh, once you're with other people there brings to mind for me um, hell and C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. Hmm. I think uh, at one point his son uh, says, you know, here, meaning heaven, is big enough for everybody to have their own private universe. And uh, have you read The Great Divorce? No, I haven't. Okay. So, um, you know, it, 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 the idea is that hell is kind of this dreary kind of world that it does have cities. Sometimes people live together because for whatever reason, that's that that's what they want. But more often than not, people will sort of um, go, you know, millions of miles away and build their own little castles with their minds because they are so disconnected from everybody and so unhappy interacting with other people. But um, here that takes place in heaven. That does, exactly. So it's so interesting to me that C.S. Lewis's vision of hell was Richard <laughs> Matheson's vision of heaven. Um, yeah, that is weird. It, 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 it is interesting. There, there seems to be a very mixed message uh, in the film about... Um, about love and connection because you know i i see that as central to the christian message about redemption and particularly eschatological redemption is that it's very much connected with unity and the love and um, you know the opposite of what i think uh, either luther or calvin talked about which was you know this idea of sin is kind of like a heart curved in nature curved in upon itself uh but that's not really foreign to heaven in this particular vision it's just you know some it's it's there for some people and it's not for others uh yeah i know in, in fact the only place where connection seems to really take place is uh is in that is is in or near that city mm -hmm. this common vision which is apparent which really only seems to be there to facilitate uh, finding seeker or trackers to go find people in hell and to uh, and to read books. Uh, I mean, in, in other words, it it like you say, it didn't seem as though connectedness was really a, a central feature of this afterlife. It was a it was something that was facilitated inadvertently in this common vision that was prepared for seemingly other reasons. I thought that was a little weird. Yeah, well, and and there is so I have. Good things to there's a comparison I'm going to make, and um, there are obvious contrasts. It's not a perfect comparison, but you know, I think it's probably the case that Matheson, in writing this story, was thinking about um, you know myths like the, of Orpheus and Eurydice, of Orpheus sort of traveling to the underworld to rescue his wife and failing. Um, but to me, this film. Uh, or Chris's character in particular, and maybe, I don't know, maybe this is intentional because his name is Chris, <laughs> um, that he's a Christ figure in a way. So, you know, there's this, it's a story about a man who's willing to risk it all uh, to, to, to go through hell, literally, to redeem his bride. And, you know, I, on the bare bones level, this is a Christian story in that sense, uh, or, you know, that, that particular detail. <laughs> hmm. um, and I think it's also kind of interesting and this could be completely unintentional, that he's doing it um, even in this universe where it's unclear if God even exists. Hmm. And, uh, you know, if God's there at all. I mean, he seems, if he's there, he's distant. I think there's, um, uh, Chris asks, um, 
who's his son who doesn't realize his son mm-hmm. um, about you know where's God in all this? And, yeah, and he says he's up there somewhere shouting down that he loves us, wondering why we can't hear him. And then he says, "You think like as a you know maybe you think that's what's happening?" And uh, so he, he's unsure about it. Well, maybe that's what's happening. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Um, and so, but that kind of brings to mind the you know the, the Christ suffering on the cross and him crying out, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" Um, and so, you know, the, in particular, um, what it is that gets his wife out of there, he tries what everything he can, can think to do to get her to, to go back to heaven with him and, and get out of hell. And finally, he just resigns himself to the fact that she's not going to leave. So he is willing to sort of let that hell envelop his own mind mm-hmm. so that he can stay there with her. And um, that is what that's when everything clicks for her. It's that act of love um, that, that changes her perspective. And um, I think she says, um, um, he says, I, I tried everything, nothing worked. And she says, until you tried joining me. Mm. And that very much to me uh, sounds like the incarnation. I mean, this idea that it's this act of self-identification um, that is ultimately what secures redemption. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I don't know entirely how much of that was in Richard Matheson's mind, <laughs> um, but it's certainly an interesting thing that I saw. But, but like I said, I mean, for him, it may have just been that may have just been incidental. It could have just been his take on the Orpheus uh, Eurydice myth. Um, but in that sense, that's not necessarily a bad thing either from a Christian perspective. I mean, a story about romantic love is not foreign to uh, the biblical, uh, you know. Uh, perspective. I mean, if you read the Song of Solomon or Paul's words about marriage in Ephesians 5, um, you know, it, 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 at the very least, it is a love that mimics Christ's self-giving love. Um, and it even brings to mind what Paul said, that uh, if he could, um, if, if his people, his ethnic, uh, you know, his Jewish brothers and sisters could be brought to Christ, he would be willing to go to hell. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, no, that's it's true. And actually, I'll, I'll take it a step further. Um, you know, there are some, I have not yet delved into their arguments, but there's some Christians who take Jesus' uh, answer to the Sadducees' challenge differently than I think most of us do. Uh, the challenge that I'm referring to is where they talk about the, the woman whose first husband dies, and so she marries his brother, and then he dies, and so on and so forth. And they say, who in the resurrection, who's, whose wife will will she be will will she be? And he says, um, you don't know the power of God, uh, you know, in 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 the resurrection women will neither marry nor be given in marriage and most i think of us have taken that to mean that whatever um whatever whatever uniqueness to marital bonds there is on this um side of eternity they'll be superseded by or exceeded by um the closeness of relationship that everybody in in eternity will share um so that there aren't you know, so, so for example, the, the unique relationship that I have with my wife would no longer be what it is now in eternity. Um, but there are some Christians that I I, I have heard um, explain that differently. And I, again, I haven't dived in, delved into it, so I don't know quite what they what they make of it. But but I am a little intrigued by the possibility that um, that kind of love is in fact very valuable and may continue. Um, into eternity somehow. I don't know how that would ex- be explained, um, or how, how, you know, how that could be accounted for in that very challenge that the Sadducees give Jesus and his answer to them. Um, but but I do think it's worth considering that 
as he said, at the very least, there is something valuable and powerful about romantic love. It's not wrong. It's not bad. And at the very least, it's a reflection of, like you said, the, the kind of um, love that Jesus has for his church, the kind of relation, the kind of love that the triune, you know, that the Godhead experienced in eternity uh, and so forth. And, and also another thing just sort of related to that, if only loosely, that I, that I found intriguing was this idea that their pets um, mm -hmm. apparently survive into the afterlife as well. Um, and, and I've actually entertained the notion, what if um, animals will take part in the resurrection as well and relationships between human beings and their loved animals might persist into eternity as well. I thought that was, I thought that was interesting. So I don't know. There's, there's a lot to be explored. Yeah. I, I think, uh, I think Lewis and C.S. Lewis also entertains that idea uh, I, I want to say it's in the four loves maybe uh, where he basically, you know, says, well, maybe animals in general um, won't be resurrected, but perhaps there is a sense in which the animals that we are close to on the basis of their, you know, um, entering into an intimate relationship with us um, may partake in our immortality in some way, which hmm. uh, is <laughs> just an interesting idea. Um, so, um, do you want to? I thought it might be kind of interesting at this point to um, deal directly with the issues of what is heaven and what is hell presented in this film, and um, kind of how we how we see that as either helpful or very unhelpful, <laughs> or very or Christian yeah. or unchristian. Um, so, what are your, I mean, kind of overall um, feelings on that or thoughts on that? Well, uh, I mean. It was it was um, it was moving emotionally, but in terms of you know what is helpful for properly understanding um, heaven and hell from a, from a biblical worldview, I, 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 I I'm not sure there's much there. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there there are little there are little gold nuggets. So for example, I, this stuck this stuck out to me, and I'm not exactly sure why. But if you recall, when um, Chris's daughter, in the form of this flight attendant, takes him to uh, the city beyond uh, the city, or on the onto the other side of the river um, that the that the city is on. She, they're walking down these these stairs, and and he says something something to the effect of, uh, "There's work. I like that." And mm -hmm. that's and and that's one of these little gold nuggets where you know, Adam was created, uh, and Eve was created. They were created to to work the land labor, you know, sort of intense labor um, was uh, a product of the fall, of an effect of the fall, but work, qua work, if you will, um, mm -hmm. seems to be a good thing. And I thought it was neat that, um, you know, he, I think I think that character expresses something that we probably would experience too, is that there's something, there's something valuable to accomplishing things in, in eternity. And so I do think that there will be a sense of work. Uh, and, and that, that sort of was a, a positive thing there. And, and like I've already mentioned, there, there may be some positive thoughts about the afterlife that, that we could um, explore when it comes to pets and relationships extending beyond the grave. Mm -hmm. but, but virtually everything else, I mean, um, you know, this, this whole idea, for example, just as one example, of you creating your own world, that places uh, you and your desires above just about anything else um, including the reality as God has created it. Um, you know, I've one of the things that I've sort of wondered about 
is the possibility that in eternity we may be able, we may be able to explore the cosmos and the depths of the oceans in a way that we can't now because what prevents us from doing that are uh, mortality and time. Uh, sorry, mortality and technology. But if we have eternity to live and to develop technology, I um you know who knows we we might be able to explore the distant reaches of the cosmos and the depths of the of the oceans. And the reason why I bring this up is just is just to say that kind of um, imaginative, imaginative vision of the afterlife. Um, it, 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 it reflects a value of a value seen in re, in reality as God has created it. That I don't think this vision of the afterlife uh, exhibits. Um, no, yeah, but I, I would, there's you know you talk about the mishmash thing. I mean. You know, well, I mean, the 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 idea of work in heaven. Maybe that's something he's taken from our our wonderful Protestant work ethic. But um, there absolutely is a popular conception of heaven and hell in this film that I think he's kind of midrushing on, and um, you know, particularly the idea that we think of heaven and hell as um, either my highest joy or my greatest suffering or greatest sorrow. You know, mm. we talk about, you know, oh, that was a living hell, or oh man, that was just like heaven. And what we mean by that is, you know, that was such a, a personal private joy. You know, th this is my own little slice of heaven. This is it's this idea that heaven or hell is primarily how, you know, in your mind in some sense, it relates, you know, there's this idea sometimes in, in popular culture that, um, you know, hell is, you know, whatever would be the most painful or, or, or terrifying for you personally to experience. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think that there's something of that in this film. And I, I don't, you know, I don't see that very uh, sort of subjective view of heaven and hell, it, you know, in scripture at all. But it, it certainly is the popular, popular conception. Well, and that's um, exactly kind of the point I'm getting at, which is that the, um, the, the, the movie reinforces uh caricatures of heaven and hell that i think mm -hmm. um in a way that's not helpful for constructing a, 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 a biblical worldview now here's the thought that i had though is it possible that you views of heaven and hell like this are just the necessary outcomes of living uh you know, growing up in a, a a culture that holds to um hell as eternal conscious torment it, it, in that <laughs> uh maybe before I, I explain what i mean by that it seems to me that you know this is just one of many metaphorical ways of understanding hell because the language of fire and torment is maybe too difficult um or maybe very evocative and we you know we we think oh well what does this mean exactly and and so we we, we try to take this literal language of, of fire or whatever and uh we make it metaphorical or you know um, it's popular in traditional circles to think of hell as not consisting of every all the language the bible actually uses to describe it and say well really it's just separation from god or it's uh you know um uh, yeah, that, yeah that, that kind of thing, you know? Uh, so I wonder if this is just kind of what is going to happen as people are trying to reflect on what this eternal conscious torment thing is supposed to mean or look like, or how can we understand it, or how can we make it palatable, or, or, or 
not sound sadistic. I don't know. I mean, I, I, no, I, it does. And I think there might be something to that. And I would add that the other reason why this might be sort of the natural um, outcome of a, of a culture that embraces uh, the idea of eternal conscious torment and is trying to sort of come to grips with it and, and, and make sense of it. In addition to all of that, you know, one of the consequences of the traditional view of hell is that the contrast between the two polar opposites of the afterlife is um, is a contrast of, of, of quality of experience, mm -hmm. meaning um, hell is the place where you experience misery and heaven is the place where you experience bliss. It's, it's, a, it's a combination of a combined focus on location and experience um, so that you know, and 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 the, this movie is very much a reflection of that taken to its extreme. The the hell is, you know, the the, the worst. It, it's it's a worst imaginable experience that you can imagine for yourself. And heaven is the most, the the the, the most incredible experience you can imagine for yourself. And it has very and, and both sides have very little to do with life and death. Whereas biblically, it's the other way around. Biblically, yes, bliss. Um, joy, uh, you know, love, um, happiness, these things are uh, experienced in the um, in, in eternity by the redeemed. But the emphasis to me, it seems to it, it, to me, it seems this way. Anyway, the emphasis is much more on dying versus uh, living. Mm -hmm. And so if, if that were the emphasis, then you wouldn't have um, an afterlife be a place where dead people remain forever, but a place where they can enjoy themselves. You would have, at most, a place where they go until they come back to life and experience life uh, as, as, as created by God versus the, the lost dying and, and not getting to experience life. So, yes, I do think... I do think that the vision reflects the, the natural outcome both of trying to make sense of eternal torment and also... Um, taking to the logical conclusion the emphases of the traditional view in contrast with the biblical view, if that makes any sense. No, I think it does make sense. But, you know, what's interesting about this film, and I guess or it's, it's, it's depiction of heaven, is it's supposed to be this kind of, you know, your own personal viewpoint of joy, um, which, you know, in so many popular uh representations of, of, of what that heaven is supposed to be like they all tend to be sound very boring and um hokey and and i don't know a, a big big yard where we could play football or whatever um and um but this film goes in the opposite direction in, in one sense because you know heaven is essentially humanistic it's about you know my own sense of fulfillment but that fulfillment is still evasive yes. even in heaven and so, you know, God doesn't make everything right in this world. We're still on our own. Heaven may have less limitations for us than, than the earth does, but it's still, we're still kind of in the same boat we were in before. Yes, very much so. So much so, in fact, that uh, Chris, and his, uh, Chris and his wife decide, as many others apparently do, to be reincarnated. I mean, if, if, if the afterlife were perfect, why would you want to go back to, to an imperfect earth? You know, so it is. It is very much. I mean, look. If if the, the reason that Chris and his wife say they want that they're apparently desi decide to be reincarnated is so they can experience this this amazing experience of finding each other once again. Why mm -hmm. couldn't that happen? If that really were what brought them ultimate joy, 
why couldn't that happen in their afterlife somehow? Why couldn't they, they each choose to forget one another and then refind one another in, 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 their, uh, in, the, in their heavenly afterlife? So you're right. It is... Um, it is. It, it does leave something to be desired, even in um, even if it's slightly better than than uh, earthly life. Well, you brought up reincarnation, and it was tough for me to understand what purpose reincarnation actually served. Exactly. And, and and it was very odd because it felt like it was just sort of him trying to put all these disparate threads and all these different religious viewpoints together. And you know, they do talk about the allure of falling in love all over again. And also of maybe not making the same mistakes again or of getting it right, which sounds, you know, very Hindu. Um, but, you know, I, I could spin that more positively and say, well, it's a kind of redemption that's like Christian redemption and that, you know, it's this rebirth or whatever. But, but the Christian rebirth doesn't require getting it all right. You know, you don't, you know, there's a, there's a sense in which you have died to what you were before, but you don't necessarily have to start your life all over again. <laughs> you know, you, you, there, there's a, a genuine redemption that happens. We, we become who we're meant to be in Christ because of what Christ has done, not because we're going to keep doing it until we manage to get it right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, yeah. And, and, and so not only was that theologically not fulfilling, it, it, it didn't make a lot of sense to me why it, people did it. <laughs> it, it. It was kind of explained, but it was unclear how it fit into this whole, this whole view of what heaven and hell are. Yes. And it wasn't just reincarnation. that seemed to make no sense. I mean, after all, there's no talk of, I mean, my understanding of reincarnation is, is that it's um, a way of approaching, it's a way of progressing toward Nirvana, but mm -hmm. in this, but in this uh, world, there is no nirvana. The reincarnation is uh, these two people do it so that they can experience falling in love with each other, one again, each with each other again. Which again, I, I would think they could accomplish in the afterlife. So I'm not sure what point it serves. <laughs> but it's not only reincarnation that's pointless. I, I, it seems to me that hell is pointless. Uh, at one point, I mean, you know, you you have you have in this hell hellish part of this afterlife, you have some suffering souls but you've also got a lot of uh, anger and and violence and stuff like that um and so the, the, it's clearly there's some sense in which the it's where the quote-unquote bad people go and yet at the same time cuba gooding jr his character tells chris that there's no judge no crimes you know no punishment we're, we're all equal um and, and it makes you wonder well wait a minute if 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 see at least in at least in eternal conscious torment at least in the um you know uh sophisticated defenses of eternal conscious torment there's a reason for it and that's justice <laughs> but here you don't even have that hell hell in this is 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 the construct of their own making and it's one yeah. from which they can't escape uh except for chris is accomplishing escaping her from hell it's it's a hell you can't escape from it's not a hell that is deserved um imposed by a judge and, you know, so, so and, and then you begin to wonder, not only is it pointless, but what is the grounds for thinking that people have the capacity to go on consciously experiencing eternity if, um, you know, if there's no God, if there's no God, why do they have this ability to keep on going on for eternity? And if there is a God, but, it, but hell isn't about justice and punishment, what in the world is it there for? Yeah. So, so you've got multiple pointless aspects to this worldview. It seems to me, it's kind of depressing. I mean, it, it feels it feels very Greek and it, it, almost like the view of Hades. And, and in fact, um, the, the tracker even captains like a, a ship, almost like a, he's going across the river Styx in order to to to, to bring uh, Chris to hell to find his wife. And 
and I think the language they use, you know, annihilation isn't, um, or sorry, hell isn't like this annihilation that's the consequence of, of being disconnected from God, who's the source of, of all life, but it's the consequences of, quote, your life gone wrong, end quote. I mean, what does that even mean? Yeah. <laughs> Why? So, uh, you know, for whatever reason, we are all eternal spirits, and we manage to get wrapped up in ourselves sometimes, and we, you know, just have to deal with that somehow. Uh, it's it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty Bleak. miserable depiction of the afterlife. It is, and 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 you know why is it that the that the people that don't go to hell, but recognize they made mistakes in life, can choose to go back and live a life where they don't make those mistakes, but the people whose mistakes cross some arbitrary line such that it produces hell for them, they mm -hmm. can't go back and, and, you know, live a better life that doesn't, I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's it, like well, you said, it's very bleak. I don't know if it's just Annie. I don't remember if it's just Annie or if this was something that was said of the people in hell in general in the film, but it seems that they maybe are not aware that they're dead. So maybe that's, maybe it's just an intellectual issue that they have to get over that hurdle of, of accepting their death first, knowing that it's, it's happened. And then maybe they, they could be in heaven or reincarnate. So yeah, it's, it's unclear. I don't know. Well, but you know, if you, if you want to sort of make this a little bit more metaphorical in a sense, I mean, you could bring it back a little bit to the issue of Annie's pain or mental illness or, or whatever. And just sort of think about the fact that, you know, that is what mental illness often is, you know, or, or you know, or this, or unhappiness in general. It's this kind of, you know, condition that you're sort of stuck in, that your your brain is sort of putting on you, uh, that you can't seem to get out of. But, I mean, I I would certainly hope that that a vision of a, you know, redemption or, or something would, would look better than that. Uh, you know, it's, there's really not. Like I said, it's heaven is really just less limitations than than earth. That's really the only difference. Yeah. Um, and I'll mention one more. Please, one more thing. Uh, I don't know if uh, I don't know if you're you're familiar with who Werner Herzog is. Um, are you? No. Okay. He's a he's a German filmmaker. He's uh, done a lot of documentaries. He's also done other things as well. But uh, he's kind of known for being. Very pessimistic. Very much. I mean, he he talks like he's a German film director. So, um, but he actually has a, a very strange uh, cameo in the film where he's he's in hell and he's talking to uh, Robin Williams' character and um, Robin Williams at first thinks he's his father. Yeah. Um, uh, but anyway, it, it was just a very 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 odd little moment for for those who are familiar with who Werner Herzog is. But. Um, yeah, so uh, well, I think we've we've kind of gone over some of the the major major themes in the film, and uh, I mean, do, do, do you do you want to have any closing thoughts about uh, either theological analysis or simply just kind of how you felt overall watching the film? I mean, good things, bad things, whatever. Well, I mean, um, like I said, I don't I don't think it's a uh, hold. I'm about to sneeze. By the way, hold on. Well, if if I sneeze, I'll I'll start over and, and you can edit it out or whatever, or or just leave the sneeze in. Um, I uh, I, I don't think it's helpful in almost any way um, to con to uh, you know nurse, nurturing and, and developing a, a biblical worldview. Uh, it, it was certainly moving and it's thought provoking for somebody that's watching it to have their thoughts provoked. You know, like I think that you and I went into it doing. Um, but and, and and I suppose it's valuable in as much as it 
it does get you thinking about some of the kinds of things we've talked about. If if uh, Hell is Eternal Torment and its modern defenders um, uh, are right about the biblical language all being metaphorical for some sort of separation from God, I think you're right. I think that this, the emphases of this movie are the natural, uh, logical conclusion to that kind of thinking. It, it's not about, as the Bible describes it, um, life and death. It's about real estate and the quality of experience in whichever side of the, uh, whichever neighborhood you land in. Um, mm. I, I don't think that's good. And, and and also it strikes me, like I said before, I I haven't, you know, you, you know me, I, I didn't um, embrace this view for philosophical or emotional reasons, but it did strike me as I was watching this, that the, the extreme amount of pain that Chris is going through in his afterlife, knowing that his wife is in torment, first torment in life, and then second torment in death. Mm -hmm. um, it just strikes me, you know, um, even if we were, even if in in being glorified we are given God's perspective, even God Himself says He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. If if we even if we were given God's perspective, it would still grieve us throughout eternity. It seems to me, knowing that our loved ones are 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 experiencing torment, and um, and I don't know how that's compatible with the biblical vision of eternity, which, as you said, is is one in which God has wiped away every tear. Um. So, I mean, these are examples and, and questions about philosophy of mind and questions about relativism. This is a really good movie for somebody who wants to um, think through these kinds of issues. It's not a really good movie for anyone who, um, you know, isn't prepared to think about those and who is more likely simply going to have their worldview in, in part shaped by the presentation of this movie. Mm -hmm. I, I could see some people for example, going in and be like, oh, yeah, I'd never thought of that. Maybe heaven is a place where, um, you know, we, we just get to construct whatever's most appealing to us. Yeah, so so basically it gets to make them more narcissistic and selfless, uh, selfish. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I don't think it's unhealthy for anybody going, uh, un going in unprepared, but for people that are um, – thinking critically about it as they're watching it i think it's it's very it's very thought-provoking and i think it's uh, um it, you know for for parents with you know somewhat uh you know t teenage kids and want to discuss these kinds of topics um mm -hmm. it might be a good uh springboard to having those kinds of conversations um so it does have it does does, does have some redeeming value i just wouldn't um its value is in the is in the many things it gets wrong, not yeah. not in anything that it gets right. Except, just, like I said, it, the work thing. What's that? It's not necessarily a film you'd hand to an atheist and say, "Watch this and see what you think." Yeah, exactly. Yeah, actually, trying to evangelize or something. Yeah, no, I I, I agree with that. Well, and you know that that raises a, a larger question about how um, Christians should be approaching uh, not just not just film necessarily, but art in general, and. Um, I heard an Eastern Orthodox film critic basically say that, um, you know, the because he came from a tradition that really appreciated what aesthetics could do. Um, I think he had a somewhat dismal, but also somewhat optimistic view of what film could be. Um, that it could, um, you know, if it was done properly, it could be used to glorify God and, and to, you know, encourage communion with God. Um, but that, you know, uh, but, but it was sort of like films ought to be like icons in a way, you know, they, they are, they are made with a theological purpose hmm. and, uh, those films that aren't, um, you know, maybe we should just stay away from, I think was kind of his perspective where, whereas 
like I, like you said, I, I don't know that I would just want to hand this to somebody without any context, but it is interesting to watch films like this because of the the questions it raises or or um, for, for, for us when we're thinking about God or salvation or eschatology or the afterlife or uh, personhood, I mean, love. I mean, so many of these things, I, I think, you know, we can develop sometimes a deeper view of something um, by contrasting it with something else. And, and certainly all of the great theology that's, that's come, out, come out of the early church was developed in opposition to a heresy. Mm. And so, you know, for that reason, I, I appreciate the opportunity to watch films like this, which I would say are heretical <laughs> in a sense, <laughs> but, but, I, uh, but I can still appreciate what is either actually good or the good that can come out of reflecting on what isn't good. Yeah, exactly. That, that's exactly right. And as far as the question of art, um, you know, this is this is one of the things that I've lamented for some time is that it, it strikes me that a lot of modern uh, Christian art, whether we're talking about books or whether we're talking about movies or whether we're talking about music, um, is not of a very high quality. Mm -hmm. um, the, and 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 I would like to see. I would like to see Christians make art that isn't necessarily theologically motivated and that is art for art's sake. Um, that's not to say that, I mean, I, I think that Christian artists should be careful about what sorts of um, inadvertent uh, side effects their, their art might have. I mean, you, you know, to take, for example, the thing that really struck me about this movie and about how it, it devalues uh, the concept of um, objective reality. Um, I wouldn't want, a Christian, I would hope that a Christian wouldn't produce art that likewise glorifies um, relativism. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I don't think that a Christian needs to even go as far as it kind of seems that C.S. Lewis did in Narnia. You know, I, well, I like, for example, Lord of the Rings. And although it does have some sort of subtle, um, uh, you know, theological. Uh, resonation you know reson it, it has it resonates in certain ways of, of biblical theology overall it really has very little to do with it and and i like that it's it's just a good story it might strike um it might raise uh provoke some thoughts so i guess what i'm saying is just that i I'd, i would like to see christians in um par, uh produce more art for art's sake mm -hmm. um and not simply try and copy the culture but 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 give better messages to them because then you end up with for example um <clears throat> uh 50 shades of gray uh you know that series of books and the movies that are being made about them um prompted christian filmmakers to make a movie you know that that's that counters that message you know where a woman sort of falls for this guy who is uh, celibate until you know it was going to remain celibate until they get married and stuff and yeah that's a good message but the movie is simply a reaction to Fifty Shades, and as a result, it's I, I've heard that its production value and its writing and all that is just absolutely mm -hmm. horrid. So, I would I, I want to see Christians take art more seriously. I guess. Oh yeah. Well, well, going back to that Protestant work ethic thing, I mean, if you're an artist, your job is to create good art, mm. and you know the fact that you're Christian means that it, obviously that's going to influence what it is that you're producing. But you know, I, if I'm going to hire a plumber, I don't particularly care too much whether he is Orthodox. In his theology, I care that he's a good plumber. Now, if he approaches uh, his work with a with a Christian value of, of honesty and of not trying to cheat people, that, that absolutely that's wonderful. But but I think it's it's sometimes you know 
sometimes Christian values relate to the work you're doing in a less explicit or direct way. And at the very least, if you're an artist, your job insofar insofar as you are an artist is to produce good art. Yeah. And uh, and I think we we've settled for well if you get the message right it doesn't really matter if the art is good. Yes, that's exactly and, uh, right. Yeah. I I once heard somebody say, uh, I mean I'll just I'll just piggyback on that with two thoughts and then if you want to wrap things up you're, you're sure. welcome to. But uh you know but I'm fine sticking around too either way. But but the two <laughs> things that, that I'm reminded of number one somebody once told me that the um the instrument the, the players of instruments in the temple you know for you you can be darn certain that they that they were not um you know uh, amateur musicians like often get up on stage at church to play in the in the worship band you know they would have been extremely good uh players of the shofar and of the lute and you know whatever what other instrument other instruments were played in the temple um and there isn't any uh, explicit or visible you know theology or content to those the, the, the music that those instruments are playing there those are being played at ex by extremely high quality in the temple because that's their job mm -hmm. and and because in so doing that in so doing their job they, they're bringing glory to god and i think that's profound but then also you know you said i wouldn't really care so much if my if the plumber is is a, a christian um i'll take it a step further if if i need a heart transplant you know, and I've got a choice between a a Christian um, who has who doesn't have the best of reputation medically, and an atheist, or even a pagan, you know, a Muslim or 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 a or a New Age person who has a stellar track record medically of saving lives and performing successful heart transplants. I'm going to go with that person. You know, mm -hmm. um, work can be done uh, for the sake of producing good work and doing it well, and, and without you know, it, it having explicit, like you said, explicit theological content. So anyway. Well, yeah. And I, 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 it is, it is my opinion that this was a film that was made well. Uh, but I wish the theological content was a little bit better. Yes, exactly <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. And it, it certainly, it, and it certainly was emotional and moving, very touching, um, heart wrenching movie for sure. Just, Chris, I, I really appreciate you doing this and, and, uh, and coming here and, and the perspective that you brought and, um, I, uh, I encourage any everybody to to look into you if they're they're interested in hearing more. Uh, your podcast, The Apologetics, though it has been a while, is is really awesome. Uh, there's a lot of uh, discussion. We have great guests, and you discuss issues related to theology and apologetics. Um, and obviously, rethinking hell is is a tremendous uh, resource as well. And there's also a podcast for it. And there's also a podcast for it, and books, and and yeah, conferences. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, you, have, you, have, you have a couple website links you want to drop. Well, as you've already said, theapologetics.com, that's the theo from the word theology plus the apologetics from apologetics.com, theapologetics.com. And yeah, I'm not keeping that going for the time being, but I do have all those past hundreds of, you know, over 100 episodes up. And you're right, there's a lot of good conversations there. I would encourage people to check them out. And then rethinkinghell.com, rethinkinghellbooks.com if you want to get at a discount, the two books that we put published, uh, rethinkinghellconference.com. Dot com um, lists the details about our upcoming uh, fourth annual Rethinking Hell conference, this time in Auckland, New Zealand. Um, I will be one of the plenary speakers there, along with Glenn Peoples, who we've talked about briefly today, as well as uh, Matthew Flanagan. Um, so yeah, those are some links. If people, if people want to get a hold of me personally, I don't know why they would with all the nonsense and rambling that I've, I've done today. But um, uh, if people want to get a hold of me personally, you can email me at chrisdate at rethinkinghell.com or find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash 
uh, Chris Date. Twitter.com slash Date Chris, although I don't use Twitter much. So yeah, those are a variety of links for people to get in touch with my ministries or with me personally. Awesome. Thank you, Chris. Thank you.